0: I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode features a very special guest. I'll be speaking with geriatrician Louise Walter, MD, who is professor of medicine and chief of the division of geriatrics at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Walter is very well known within medicine and geriatrics for her pioneering work, on cancer screening in older adults. She was basically one of the first doctors to point out that some forms of cancer screening, such as mammograms for frail older women in their last years of life, are actually likely to be harmful rather than beneficial. Dr. Walter has also done quite a lot of research on prostate cancer screening. So her research has helped doctors and health systems move away from our old age-based one-size-fits-all approach to cancer screening And instead, we're now moving towards an approach that is individualized and takes people's health and preferences into account. Last but not least, Dr. Walter does still see patients. She has a primary care clinic, so she gets to put her work into real-life practice. And so I'm thrilled to have her. Dr. Walter, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You know, cancer screening comes up a lot in uh, the news these days, which is good and I think is a credit in large part to some of the work that you've done. But within our field in medicine, you're especially, I think of you as well known for this key scholarly article that you published back in 2001 on cancer screening in older adults. And I think it was really the first of its type. And we're going to talk a little bit more about it in a sec. But Could you start by telling us, how did you become interested in this question of cancer screening for for older people? What led you to write this paper? And what did you discover?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It came about because of what I was doing in clinical practice. So I was seeing a lot of my older folks in in clinic and really asking myself, you know, am I going to help this person by sending them for a certain cancer screening test? Or am I going to hurt them? How do you decide? I remember going to the literature to try and figure that question out and found you know, that there wasn't a lot of guidance about what to do um, as people become older. A lot of the guidelines for cancer screening used age cutoffs. And, you know, it just never made sense to me. You know, why can't I get a screening mammogram for a really healthy 80-year-old woman who's hiking in the mountains? I had to really fight to do that. Yet I was being, you know, oftentimes told that I needed to screen the 75-year-old with severe dementia in a nursing home because they fell within the age guidelines, Um, And it just did not make sense to me. So that's um, how I became interested in cancer screening because what I was being asked to do just didn't really make sense to me. It seemed like, again, that life expectancy, um, patient preferences are much more important than thinking about age alone.
0: So in writing this paper, what did you learn about cancer screening?
1: Yeah, I learned that, again, that life expectancy and patient preferences are much more important than age you know, when you actually look at the trials and you you look at the data, that in general, people have to have at least a five to 10-year life expectancy to derive some benefit from most of the cancer screening tests. And we're talking about mammography for breast cancer screening or, you know, all the different types of colon cancer screening or lung, even now lung cancer screening, pap smears, all that stuff. They don't help you right away because, you know, someone is not having any symptoms when they're getting screened. This is not about a workup. This isn't someone coming in with a breast lump or... You know, bleeding, this is someone who has no symptoms, most likely does not have any problems, and you're trying to screen to find an asymptomatic cancer at an early stage that, you know, years down the road, and again, they estimate at least 5 to 10 years down the road, would cause a problem. So, generally, you have to have at least, you know, a 5 to 10-year life expectancy to benefit, or the only thing you're getting from cancer screening is harm.
0: Yeah, and I think that's something that the public and even doctors don't always think about, you know, the, the fact that a lot of the tests or procedures we do, even seemingly minor ones like mammograms, can bring harm to people. I think we're often just really focused on the potential benefit. Now, I feel that I've heard you you say that when it came to that 2001 article, one of the things that people seemed especially interested in was that you had created this chart showing life expectancy for people of different ages. And tell us a little bit more about how you created that chart and why it seems so notable to the medical community.
1: Well, when I realized that life expectancy was such a big component of, you know, making sure people are more likely to to receive benefit than than the harms, I realized that we needed to have good ways to estimate life expectancy, um, and the the available data at the time was really the the average life expectancy at each age. You could get that on the from the life tables of the United States, but you really couldn't get the range. So I actually called up the National Center for Health Statistics, said you know I'm really interested in the range of life expectancy, and they actually helped me develop the quartiles, so really showing that. You know, If you take all 80-year-old women in the United States, for example, you know half of them are going to live close to 10 years, but 25% are going to live 13 years or more, or only the sickest 25% are going to live five years or less. So it helps you really understand that there's great variation in how long people of similar ages live. So you can't just look at somebody's age to understand what their life expectancy is. So we, you know, made this graph that showed, you know, I think in a very simple and clinically useful way, the different quartiles and ranges of life expectancy at each age to really help anchor people. Um, When you're thinking about life expectancy, it's really helpful to know, you know, gosh, this is the range of life expectancy at this age. Where does this patient fit in, you know, as opposed to not having any anchor, and starting off at like, oh, you know, they have only have two years, but actually that's very off. So if you have some anchors, I think it helps people uh, use their clinical judgment together with that anchor to come up with better estimates.
0: Yeah, I'll have to see if I can find public domain image of the chart. But yeah, it, it, it is, um you know, these little bars. And at 70, it kind of shows that the healthiest 25%, this one is for women, are the average life expectancy is 21 years, Yep. you know, which is fantastic, right? That means living to 91 And for the sort of um, middle 50%, so those are the people who are between the 25% to 75 percentile, I guess, it's uh, 15.7 years. And then for the sickest ones, the lowest 25%, it's uh, 9.5 years, which is still not that bad, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. But but I think you're right. Seeing that spread really helped everybody realize that that there's a, a lot of variation in there. And do you feel like doctors are pretty good at, once this is brought up to them, ballparking whether a patient is in the sort of lowest 25 percentile or top 25 percentile? What's your sense of that?
1: Yeah, well, I think we're getting better. I mean, I certainly, when I went through uh, medical school, and I think even to this day, we don't get a lot of training in how do you prognosticate, how do you estimate life expectancy? We get a lot about how you diagnose and treat people, but but very little on the question that people frequently ask about, you know, how long do I have? And so I think bringing this, this idea, these life tables up has helped people, again, having an anchor you know, there's still studies showing, you know, the longer a doctor knows a patient, the more inaccurate they are. They overestimate life expectancy. Oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, I actually think the goal we have is try to bring tools to people to provide some objective anchor that you can then merge in with your clinical judgment to better estimate life expectancy. So, I mean, we've been developing things. I know you know about ePrognosis, a website that basically collects all the validated life expectancy calculators for older people and puts them all in one place. So you can really, you know, if you think, oh, gosh, I'm seeing a patient who's either in a nursing home or they're living in the community or, you know, what they're, where they're living, you can look at, at what calculators would be most helpful to you. So I think it's going to be a com- combination of providing people with more tools, um, as well as helping people improve their clinical judgment, because the best prognostication comes when you put um, objective measures together with clinical judgment.
0: Right. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about the calculators, but just briefly, something you said kind of struck me. It's the thing about patients asking, how long do I have? Because I'm curious about your experience, but I feel like I've actually really rarely been asked that question, that it mostly comes up if people have cancer or something else that many people think of as a terminal, I'm going to die diagnosis, which I feel mostly comes up with cancer and that, that often, even if people have quite moderate or advanced other forms of, of illnesses, that they don't so often ask, how long do you think I'm likely to live? But tell me a little bit more about what, what your experience has been in both patients asking you about it and how you've brought it up to, to patients.
1: Sure. Well, I remember when we've actually done some studies asking people, would they want to talk about life expectancy? And over half of people said, you know, I would like to talk with my doctor about life expectancy whether i believe it or not is one thing but you know it actually i would like to talk about it so i will often you know ask you know would you like to talk about life expectancy realizing that we are not perfect in how we estimate it but is that something that you know you're concerned about or would want to talk about and again over half the people will say yeah let's let's talk about it i talk a lot about um, when people have you know a serious medical illness we should really focus on you know your serious illness, because that's how you're going to live longer and better. And we shouldn't distract your care going after things such as cancer screening um, that are more likely just to hurt you, and you have really no chance uh, really to benefit from that. If we can get your serious illness under control, then we sh- then we can revisit that. But again, we don't want to distract uh, your care from figuring out how to improve your serious illness, and not versus things that are less likely to to ever hurt you. So, so I guess that's sort of how I oftentimes will bring it up. Um, it's interesting uh, and maybe it just depends on on your patient population, but I certainly have people I had this one gentleman who really had this very small, you could hardly even see it, little early skin cancer, not melanoma, one of the more benign cancers. And, the, you know, he's being told he needed to have all this procedures and everything. And and he looks at him and he was, you know, 95 at the time. And he's like, well, what's my prognosis? Like, is this really ever going to affect me? Why would I undergo a major surgery for something I don't even have any problem with right now? Right. Right. And you're telling me that you're getting this, you know, you're, you're taking this early pre, you know, skin cancer thing off. And he ended up convincing them not
0: to do it. And it did not affect him during his life. That's wonderful. And we certainly need, I think it would be wonderful if more, more people asked that. Kind of, how are you expecting this is going to help me over the next few years? Right. Um, And how might this harm me, right? What are the downsides? Yeah,
1: we often say it's just as important to ask, when will this help me? And not just ask, will it? The trials always will say, gosh, it has this much benefit. But a lot of people forget, well, the trials say it has this much benefit after 10 years. You know, if someone's sitting in front of you and they don't have a 10-year life expectancy, then they're not going to benefit from that test.
0: Yeah. And I know there's sort of interest in helping people think about the likelihood that they're going to benefit that sort of number needed to treat, you know, how many people have to have the treatment for somebody to save a life. But I think that's a good point that you also have to know over how many years you have to take that medication every day to, to get a chance at that benefit based on, you know, the research we've done. So that's really important too. Now, earlier, you mentioned uh, life expectancy um, calculators. Tell us a little bit more about what those are for the audience. Sure.
1: Basically, life expectancy calculators are things that look at a bunch of different domains that affect somebody's likelihood of survival. They use a statistical process to figure out, well, what is the most parsimonious or smallest number of domains that you can put together that are most accurately going to estimate life expectancy so that you're not looking at something where you're putting in 100 elements because no one's going to be able to do that. Like, How do you put in you know, five, ten elements or or characteristics about somebody to be most predictive of survival. And so people have done research on this in different settings, whether people are in the hospital or if people are living in the community or if they're in nursing homes and have developed, you know, validated models that on average are correct in about 80% of the time and that they assign a higher risk of death to the person who, who does ultimately die than the person who doesn't. So again, they're not perfect. But they do provide some objective measures, and you can go in, uh, again, on this ePrognosis website, and you can fill in. It'll say, you know, enter your patient's age, enter your patient's, you know, serious illnesses, enter whether they can, you know, how far can they walk, those kind of things. And then it, it'll calculate a risk score, and that risk score is associated with a certain, you know, five or 10-year uh, mortality, or depending what, again, some of them will look more at the six-month uh, mortality. If you're trying to make a hospice decision, some of the calculators will look at more of the the five or ten year life expectancy. When you're trying to think about screening or cancer screening, that's what I sort of think about when I think about life expectancy calculators.
0: Yeah, and uh, I remember our colleague um, Say Lee had one that was published in JAMA several years ago, which was based on questions that were asked in um, interviews. I forget it might have been the Health and Retirement Survey. But uh, he had the data set of what people's answers had been to questions about their life and their health. So there weren't even really in office measurements. And then because the survey followed people over many years, they knew who had died. And he had been able to use that data to kind of find which responses corresponded to people dying. Correct. And that's, I think, part of uh, the basis for one of the calculators, which is online at ePrognosis. And I'll put a link to that because even though it's um, I think ideally suited to be used by doctors or doctors and patients together, I know that, that you and Sane, and the others at UCSF working on e-prognosis have chosen to make it available to everybody so that everyone can learn from this process of uh, taking a best guess at people's uh, life expectancy. Correct. Well, let's switch now to talk about prostate cancer for a bit because you've done a lot of work on that recently. So that's one of the most commonly diagnosed cancers in men. The lifetime risk of being diagnosed has been estimated at around 15%. Tell us a little bit about the research that you and, and others have done and what's been found when it comes to screening for prostate cancer.
1: Well, first thing I'll say is I wish we had a better test. So the PSA screening test, you know, is not a great test. You know, we've looked at again trying to figure out, you know, who's more likely to benefit or who's more likely to be harmed. And what's very clear is that there is a long, what we call lag time to benefit from when you get a PSA screening test to when there's any potential to benefit. And even the trials, since they were conflicting, even raised the question of, is it beneficial or not? But I think everyone agrees that there's a long time between when you, when you would get the test to when you could actually benefit. And they estimate that to be at least 10, if not 15 years. And so, you know, one of the things we always looked at is, gosh, are men who have less than a 10-year life expectancy Are they deciding hopefully not to get this test to avoid the harms? And what we found in our research is that a lot of of very elderly uh, men with serious illness and a limited life expectancy, often life expectancy is less than five years, um, the majority of them continue to get PSA screening and basically are only subjecting themselves to the harms of the test. And we've seen some real harm. So I've done studies looking at the harms of what we call overdiagnosis, where you find very slow growing or indolent Cancers, and because they're, you know, a cancer, then that person ends up getting radiation or a prostatectomy, getting all the side effects um, like impotence or incontinence from the from the surgery, and and really being harmed um, during the last part of their life um, when it really was not. Again, you know, if it had never been screened, they would never had a problem. So I think that's some of the things that we have found in our research is that PSA screening is not currently being well targeted to people who have a long life expectancy. Um, It's Oftentimes used in in older men with limited life expectancy, which is not recommended.
0: Now, for these older men who uh, who are older or frailer, maybe have lots of chronic illnesses or hospitalizations, you know, things that make it likely that they're they're not going to live more than five years, much less ten to fifteen, and they're getting the PSA test. Do we know whether that's because they're asking for it versus the doctors kind of doing it because they've gotten into the habit of doing it every year?
1: Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, some of the systems that were screening very high rates in the 90% of of frail older men with limited life expectancies were getting screening in some of the sites that we found. It was oftentimes automatically being added to lab tests that the person was getting. So it was not being an individualized decision. It was more, it's just part of the panel of lab tests that we get. It's sort of you know, we don't really think about it. We just get it because it's a blood test. And that's, you know, it's not just a blood test. It, it, the only way you can diagnose prostate cancer, right, is then a biopsy and all the other things that go along with it. I think in many cases, at least in our, in our frail older men, it was because it was just being added on as a lab and not because there was a discussion about here are the risks and benefits and what, you know, what are your patient preferences.
0: Mm-hmm. And then some, uh, I think the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force and others have, have recommended that when men request screening or if they're considering screening, they be supported in making an informed decision. And there are decision aids that have been developed for this. And I was just wondering, do you use any decision aids? And what's your thought on, maybe actually we can start by reviewing what is a decision aid? And then I'd love to know whether you've used them in your own practice and how that's worked for you
1: and your patients. Yeah, I mean, I have used decision aids. I mean, decision aids, are essentially, you know, they can be a paper or... They can be on the web we certainly have we have apps for breast cancer and colon cancer screening decisions that have people answer questions about what's important to them and also answer questions about that help you know calculate again life expectancy or again a seri- if you have a serious medical illness is that going to increase the chance you're going to be harmed? Um, from this test. So it's sort of a, a guide to help either doctors or there's decision aids for patients, you know, really think through the pros and cons of a screening decision to help people decide what is best for them. Um, and they can put in what outcomes are they most worried about? You know, there's some people that say, gosh, why, you know, for PSA screening, you know, if there's any chance that it can help prevent me from dying of prostate cancer, I want to get the test because I don't it doesn't matter about the, the downsides. I, I just so worry about that. And then there's a lot of people. I, I did
0: read the downsides. I did read about the downsides, yeah, exactly. and I still don't care about that. You kind of want to make sure they read about them. Exactly.
1: <laughs> and then there's the flip side. I have a lot of patients that say, well, why why would I want to get a test that has known harms and the benefit is uncertain? Like, why would I get that? You know, so I think it really depends on, you know, how people think about how they make decisions in uncertainty. So I think that at least for prostate cancer screening and then for breast and, and colon cancer screening, you know, there is a fair amount of uncertainty in older people just because older people, this people over 75 um, have not been included in the trials. So again, you're thinking, gosh, is this test going to help me or hurt me? What's the evidence to suggest it will help me? What's the evidence to suggest it will harm me? And how do I make that informed decision? And I just think decision aids are an outline or a way to sort of march through and really make sure you you think about all the different pros and
0: cons. Mm-hmm. But I think that structure can be really, really important, you know, because uh, it seems to me that historically, so much of the doctor-patient encounter has been doctors just having to remember things and think of things and make sure they address things. And that's actually pretty challenging. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard to do it consistently. And it's hard to sort of make sure you bring up the latest information, especially with, you know, often there not being a lot of time in the visit. I think there's really something to be said for having a structure and an outline and maybe giving people a chance to walk through it on their own or with another provider. Because uh, I think sometimes that's done, it can be done with a nurse or another kind of trained provider to sort of walk them through the information and get them thinking a little bit. And then that time with the doctor can be sort of, you know, discussing it and getting your questions answered and, you know, talking a bit about about what's important to you. Absolutely. So, um, I think just adding a little bit more structure that helps people get some necessary information, because even though there's so much that we don't know for sure, there's actually often some things that we, we do know approximately that patients may not know at all right. until they're given a chance to get that information. Like the fact that, you know, studies are generally don't show that prostate cancer screening saves lives. People often aren't going to know that unless somebody has told them. So are there any particular decision aids that you use for, let's say, prostate cancer with your patients?
1: I'm trying to think. I, I certainly there's actually videos you can get from the Society for Medical Decision Making. I've certainly have their videos, and patients can actually get those videos too. So you know, sometimes people will will request you know things from the Society for Medical Decision Making. Take a look at those, and then have a discussion with the doctor. As I, I often times use ePrognosis uh, for for breast and colon cancer screening which are again those are a little easier because at least we have trials showing that they are beneficial in some group you know in some age group there's very clear data that you know these things work it, it becomes what the the uncertainty is is whether you can extrapolate that to to older people right but for PSA the problem is it's it's just conflicting at all age levels there's one trial showing you know, that prostate cancer screening, the PSA, you know, reduced prostate cancer mortality by 20%. And then there's another trial, the U.S. trial, showing it did not have a benefit. And if anything, it was trending towards harm. So again, you're left with uncertain benefit.
0: Yeah. So if your patient tells you, well, doctor, you know, my dad had prostate cancer. I'm worried that I might have it. I want to be checked. What do you What do you tell them? I will usually say, I'll talk to them about potential downsides first. Um, people,
1: tend to remember the beneficial things more so you, they recommend talking about the harmful things first so and also just making sure people understand it's not just a blood test that they're the idea is to do the blood test if it's high then the next step would be a biopsy to try and understand is it do you actually have you know a cancer or is this is the high PSA due to many other things that can cause a high PSA um, and if they say I would never want a biopsy you know then that's pretty clear that you shouldn't get the PSA screening test. Um, if they say, I want to get a biopsy, then you talk about, do you know what, what are the harms of the biopsy? What are your concerns about? And go on from there. And so, yeah, so you ha- you basically you have a discussion to make sure that people are informed that everything in medicine can have good and bad things happen, you know, the, the good and bad. Um, and so I think that's the big thing is making sure people realize that it's not just something that's a simple blood test and can only do good things. It's not like playing the lottery, it's actually an intervention that can have major downsides and people just need to be aware of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. That's a great way to go about it. And and I often sort of start off like I hear this is really important. You know, I just want to make sure that we've talked through, you know, what could happen and the implications. But I think it's really important to make sure that people are aware of those potential harms and what the implications are. And I think, you know, it especially comes up when adult children are making decisions for an older parent, right? Mm-hmm. That's when I find. It can be really helpful because usually if your adult child is making decisions for the parent, the parent has a lot of disability. Otherwise, they would uh, be making decisions. And there I feel like it can be really helpful to just remind people of what the implications would be of the test and, you know, the downsides and ask, do they think that this is what they uh, they want, or what the older person would have wanted for themselves, and it's also helpful just to understand what is the goal, what are we trying to accomplish, exactly. So, and is it likely to accomplish it? You know, are there better ways that we could accomplish this uh, this goal that's important for you or your family? Yeah. Well, in closing, could you just give us some top tips for the audience when it comes to making sure that they get you know the quote right, cancer screening
1: i think ask questions you know it's i'm amazed how many people get tests and they have no idea why they're getting the test so i think it is always good to ask questions to understand the risks and benefits to realize that medicine is a double edged sword it can do great things you know if it's targeted to the the people that are most likely to benefit and it can do dreadful things if it's targeted towards people who have a lot of the risk factors for bad things to happen. Um, So I think it's, I would just encourage people to look at cancer screening as something that you should have a a discussion with your doctor about, especially as you get older, and the data runs out about whether, you know, how helpful it is. So, you know, if you're, if you're over 75, you definitely should have a discussion with your doctor about is this going to help me is what's the downsides, because I think, that's where the benefit is small or uncertain, and it really needs to be an individualized decision, not just a checkbox that, you know, you just automatically get it without thinking.
0: Yeah, a carefully considered decision yeah. that you've sort of thought through and maybe, you know, talk to your doctor about what are the latest, best recommendations for people your age and condition. Yep. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thank you so very much, Dr. Walter, for, for joining us today to talk about this. Thank you for inviting me. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard, you can post it on the show notes page for this episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that Dr. Walter and I discussed in the episode on the show notes page. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes and if you've already done that, please leave a rating and a review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.